Before we get started, I just want to make a reminder to everybody that the information uh, discussed today is not to be interpreted or construed as investment advice. Everyone's financial situation, goals, and objectives are different. Please consult investment advice. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to the Looney Hour, episode 39. As always, joined by the three amigos, we got uh, Rich Diaz of Acorn Macro Consulting in his Dutch orange shirt here. And we've got Keith Dicker with Icecap Asset Management in the John Deere tractor. I think Keith just got a new, brand new tractor for, uh, to mow his mansion there. He's sending pictures, tarps off, pounding beers on the, on the John Deere tractor there. And uh, I apologize in advance. I violated my own rule. I did not bring my mic. I am uh, away. I'm in Penticton right now. So getting married in the next couple of days here when this podcast probably drops and I forgot my pod, uh, my mic. So I apologize in advance. Power through it. Um, what's going on, Rich? Rich is back from Iceland, the love boat. Yeah, it was really cool. Uh, definitely recommend um, going to Reykjavik. It was amazing. Really lovely people, um, great bar, like coffee scene, um, and uh, without the hipsters, um, it was re- like just a really, really wonderful culture and and just like a really great history. I mean, these people have suffered and have really made the most of it. Um, so it's you know I, I don't know for people who may not know it's it's basically the last vestige of of the of the Viking sort of culture and language. Uh, these people, uh, it was farmers, not not seafaring people, as as you might have guessed. Uh, it was farmers that sort of found this island um, and and immigrated there um, in the nineteen nine hundred and thirty around, and they let their sheep mow down all the trees. So when you go there, there's no trees, and they and you ask why, and it's because they burnt them down, and they they let their sheep get at them. But that creates a wonderful, wonderful paysage. Uh, there are lava flows and um, there's um, glaciers that are there. Um, I'm a nerd and I like engineering stuff. So there's like geothermal energy that powers all of Reykjavik, which is really cool. And um, Like I said, the people and the beer are great. So I had a really, really nice time. Yeah. So we're going to get into uh, energy uh, policy here a little bit here today and, and suffering as well, because I think they kind of go hand in hand. But uh, Keith, Keith, what's going on? Oh, yeah, I do not have a tractor, by the way, but I think we'll talk a little <laughs> for, for those that are not watching uh, the, the video version. Um, Rich and I have I think we'll be talking a little bit today about what's happening over in Europe, you know, which continues to um, I guess, Rich, like in this, Steve, it's the it's the overlaid theme that we've been talking about for quite some time now, one with regards to Europe and the other one with what's happening with, with the energy sector and, and policies that are being implemented. But um, I think we also have a, a Twinkie bet we need to get established yeah. in today's episode as well. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, has the recession started or has it ended already? That that thing came at us fast. So we got a good week today. This is going to be a, gonna, good, a good yeah, chat gonna, today. It's going to be a good podcast. And, and like, you know, to remind everybody, like, when, you know, we talk about... You know, there's going to be some people that are listening to this and go, oh, you know, Europe again. Just, just understand that everything that we talk about ultimately comes back and does correlate, you know, domestically here in Canada, you know, for our Canadian listeners. So, you know, kind of bear with us as we travel the globe here. But let's let's start it off domestically, which is we got the Bank of Canada coming up, I believe, next week, uh, July 13th. So July 13th, guys, mark that on your calendars. That's going to be a fantastic day because you've got... Bank of Canada coming out. You've got, I think, US CPI uh, gets released that day as well, which everybody's eagerly anticipating. And I believe uh, NHL free agency uh, also begins late this year on July 13th. So I'm the most important (laughs) one of those. If you're Canadian, that is a very important day. So um, July 13th, mark that on your calendars. But as of right now, uh, the Bank of Canada, I believe market expectations haven't really changed much. It looks like 75 basis points is basically uh, chalked up and ready to go. Um, 
does anyone want to take a bet on on 100 basis points or 50 basis points or uh i'm i'm, I'm sticking to 75 i mean i'm not going to fight the market on this one i think the the central bankers have been pretty clear about their 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 course here uh to, to my surprise well I'm, I'm at i think i established 75 a couple episodes ago so uh that hasn't changed however one thing that I think could be happening by the September or October meeting, I think they could be done by then. And that, that's an enormous move that happens. Because right now the market's expecting 75 next week, and then for September, another 50, and whispers of 75, then another 50 in October. I, I think there's now, it's no longer a 0% chance, but it's now increasing the probability is increasing that if, if we start to see economic data rolling on, which I think it could happen, uh, you could see the Bank of Canada just, just either stop hiking or become a lot less hawkish than they were. And, and that's a big contrarian call. I see Rich is grinning now ear to ear. But Well, um, I, I think I'm just going to go ahead and do it. I'm going to pump my pound on my chest. I don't actually have a view on this, but for the sake of entertainment and for the sake of my sugar intake, I will, I'll say, I think they, they're, they will revert back to being the, um, <laughs> let's just say they'll revert back to form. I'm being polite and um, they'll only raise 50 basis points. So there you go, boys. I'm putting, I'm putting myself on the line. Thank God. Uh, let the comment show up. <laughs> um, no, so I what, just think, what, I mean, the reason I said that, sorry, the reason I think that's true is because, again, I will maintain that I think the inflation, um, God willing, they've maybe paid attention to our podcast and followed me on Twitter and noticed my, my points about inflation. But also, I think, I mean, one of the things is the IVPMI came out. I can't remember the exact number. It came out either today or yesterday. Um, and it was lower than expected. And it's starting to roll over. The, they're obviously cognizant of what's going on globally. Um, we're going to get to the Europe and stuff, but you know, the US PMI ticked lower again. Um, there, there's something, I mean, whether you think it's a recession or you think it's a mid cycle slowdown or whatever, clearly the world is creaking. And um, I think, um, yeah, and I think that, you know, and mo most importantly, which Steve will elaborate on, is the housing market is starting to shit itself. <laughs> and we all know the most important <laughs> sector in the economy is starting to wobble a little bit. And the Central Bank of Canada, his only job is to sustain the housing market. And so there you go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wouldn't mind touching on that, Keith. I don't know if you want to chime in quickly. I know you were kind of chomping at the uh, bit. No, so, uh, no, housing after. Yeah, Rich's point is well taken, and you know that could be the case because you know whereas the the Fed, whatever the Fed has um, you know sold to the market that they've always delivered. There's never been a shock with the Fed because they always leak what they're going to do, and and then they do it because the Fed is not allowed to surprise anyone. The, the Bank of Canada is not very good at it. Either they intentionally try to do it, or they just just unaware of how the world works. But remember a, a few meetings back, remember they were, uh, I think it was the first hike, you know, we were expecting 25 and they did zero. Remember that was a, a huge, that, that, Rich, you won the bet that time. That, yeah, that was, that was the, the first, first Twinkie bet. bet. Yeah, absolutely. So this time, again, the market is clearly uh, communicating to the Bank of Canada, hey, you've now guided us to 75. That's what you should do. But there is, you know, as I was trying to explain, there is now, evidence or support coming out where they could become less aggressive so maybe instead of you know 75 this meeting and 50 next meeting maybe they do 50 this time and 20 i don't know like they, they do have the opportunity to do that however if they do not cut i'm sorry if they do not raise rates by 75 basis points next week um, I think Canadian dollar would just go in the crapper next week. Like it'll come down. Because the other thing to remember as well, it, it, Steve made a good point earlier, the whole world is connected here. And if you align what rate expectations are for the Bank of Canada and, and, and the Americans, uh, they're, they're lucky. They're right in line from July, September, October slash November and, and December for year end. That they are identical right now. So um, you know, some people say that Bank of Canada they get their marching orders from the Fed. They, they get a pretty good phone call. I know that. So if they tend to deviate from this, then you know we will see the market reaction. But I'm in for 75. That's what I go with. Yeah, Rich is in yeah. for 50. Steve I mean, is what Steve going to do? 75. I'm boring. 
Do I have to eat two Twinkies if I get this wrong? <laughs> Only if you want. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, on, on the housing front, um, yeah, I mean, kind of as I've talked about before, right? When we talked about rate hikes at the beginning of the year, it, the, the thesis has always been, listen, yes, you can, of course, you can always raise interest rates. You can raise them as much as you want, but not without you know, a significant amount of pain. I just don't think that the system... Uh, is really built for that. And, and especially here in Canada, we, again, we're seeing all these rate hike increases and, and look, look what's happening to, you know, housing, which is really like our economy. Um, so the, the greater Toronto area back-to-back months of 20-year low in home sales. Now, again, keep in mind that when you look at like the GTA, that's Canada's largest major metro. It's, it's, it is our most important, I would say, province from an economic perspective, from a housing perspective. You know, when I think when regulators set policy uh, on a federal level, a lot of that is with the intention of Ontario. And so the, the bull thesis for like Toronto housing has always been like record population growth. Everybody's moving here. Like we're like the next Manhattan, like that, like that's what people say in Toronto. And so when you say, well, you've got a 20 year low in home sales, that's not adjusting for like the population growth over the last 20 years. That's not adjusting for the increase in housing stock over the last 20 years. So like, that's like, this is a collapse in housing activity. And that's, that's for two consecutive months. We're seeing parts of that in Vancouver, you know, here in the suburbs, we had a 20 plus year low in the Fraser Valley. Uh, you are seeing prices coming off. They're not necessarily being captured by home price index or benchmark prices because those are lagging indicators, which I think is ultimately what the Bank of Canada actually relies on. So they're kind of forward. They're not forward thinking. They're they're backwards looking. The central bankers are are using, I would say, stale inventory. And and, and Rich, I mean, it's probably the same thing as you know CPI, right? I mean, CPI is is arguably a lagging indicator. So I would imagine that you know these guys again are are not. I'm not sure how forward-looking they are. Um, so I think they are obviously hiking into that slowdown. It's interesting. I was actually chatting with one of my friends. He runs a pretty large research firm in Canada. And so he was telling me that they interviewed uh, former Bank of Canada Governor Stephen Polos uh, last week, kind of getting some of his thoughts on on the markets and, and you know, and so, I mean, the takeaway from that was basically, you know, Polos was like, yeah, I wouldn't want to be a central banker today. Um, he wouldn't comment on what he would do if he was Tiff Macklem. He says there's an unwritten rule in central banking that they're not allowed to sort of comment on that. But um, his view was ultimately that they're going to raise interest rates again. I mean, pretty obvious, very aggressively in the near short term. But he, he was of the opinion that rates will be coming back down uh, over the sort of medium to long term, given the amount of debt and sort of demographics and, and whatnot in, in, in most of the world. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting. Obviously, I mean, Polos was talking about housing. He definitely thinks it's going to adjust. He's like, as it should, right? I mean, housing is all about interest rates. And um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't mind chatting as well on, on the bond market, uh, what you guys are seeing there, how you're viewing it, because you know, when we, when we talk about Canada anyways, uh, we know we always look at the Canada five-year bond that had a huge rip over the last three, four months. Everyone's talking about rates hitting 5%, going to six, seven, eight percent and the world collapsing. And over the last two weeks, we've seen that Canada five-year bond yield uh, drop by about 50 basis points, which is a huge move. And we've seen some of the big banks now actually cutting their fixed rate mortgages ever so slightly. Um, so, it, you know, so we're seeing a little bit easing on the, on the fixed rate mortgage side, um, and then another bounce back up over the last day or two. So a lot of, lot of volatility in the bond market, uh, Rich, I don't know if you're, if you're watching that, um, but they, these do not seem like very normal moves. I mean, there's a, it seems like there's a lot going on in the rates markets. I mean, I don't know. Normal is a bit tough. I think when you get to really, really low levels, I think that like we've talked about before, there's a leverage issue that I think sort of kind of messes around with that. So I can't speak to normal, but I do know the bond volatility index, which we've discussed here before, the move index. You guys can Google it if you want. Um, it's a core. It's corollary is the VIX, which is the VIX uh, CBOE VIX volatility index. Um, it just it just remains super high. I mean, so there's something going on. We've talked about, um, but the, the funny thing is when just to remind some of our listeners, when bond yields go down, 
prices go up. Um, and so, um, and forgive me if that's obvious, but you know, so just important to note that some of the best performing, um, best performing assets over the last, let's say two weeks or whatever, have been bonds actually, which makes which makes sense. Month to date, the German Bund is up two percent. I mean, that's that's quite a lot. Again, bouncing from massive lows. Hey, I, I get it. But sorry, yeah. we didn't drop. We don't give investment advice in the show, but I think we did talk about getting long TLT like what three four weeks ago. Yeah, we actually we actually nailed that. I mean, we've gotten a bunch of things wrong, but that one we absolutely nailed. <laughs> So I was quite happy with that. Um, I think it's, um, you know, the, we talked about different reasons why that be, might, might, might be happening. Keith's point has always been about weaker growth. Um, you know, my point has been more on the valuation front um, and, um, and also, you know, maybe on the inflation bit. But I mean, it's, I think it's basically, it's never just one thing. Let's be very, very clear about that. It, it just never is. The other thing that I think people should pay attention to is again, credit spreads. So credit had an okay, you know, after giving up and after losing a lot of money over the last little while, um, credit and, 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 and let's say non-government bonds. So investment grade and, and high yield corporate bonds also had a decent, couple of weeks but again this is after giving up i mean 20 in some cases 30 percent right so is it a dead cat bounce who, who knows but the, yeah that's sort of how that's worked out keith how are you looking at things uh, So what i what you know the, the movement in in rates over the last couple of weeks in our view it's because there, we have this transition taking place now between you know we're in this hyperinflationary environment to all of a sudden it's we could be going into recession. So that's why we're now all of a sudden the people, everyone who was short, you know, treasuries and federal government bonds, and they made a lot of money by shorting that market. And, you know, every other Canadian in the balance fund lost money, you know, with, with that kind of strategy. Uh, money is now starting to flow in to long government bonds. And uh, they're trying to figure that out. And so I know here in the podcast, you know, we introduced a concept, a few, you know, a, a few weeks ago that, hey, the, the probability of recession is now no longer zero, it's increasing. And now like, seems like every hour, there are new headlines coming out that there's, hey, we're headed for a recession. So in my mind, that's what's driving the bond market right now. And uh, so for us, you know, I always say, you know, we're always looking for an opportunity coming up. And, and we think now there might be an opportunity in the government bond market. It, it wouldn't be one of these long-term trades. It's more of a shorter-term allocation. We'll see how it goes. I suspect what will happen because the, the world is always in extremes right now. It's never this sort of Goldilocks environment because things have been you know pushed too far. Um, but I suspect we're going to go into a period where recession expectations will hit 100%. GDP estimates are going to... Like, you know, just then you know the arse will drop out of it as, as they say and, and stuff like that and then that's at the point where bond prices may have rallied at, at the most so so the 10 year for example will go from a three percent yield maybe down to a two percent like we, we could get that movement here so as you know as rich said when when rates go from three percent down to two for a long-term bond that you're probably going to make ten percent on your money that that's the kind of opportunity that uh, some of these managers are looking at. Uh, but to give you an example right now, so this morning RBC came out, you know, and um, by the way, you, you always gotta be wary of the, of the biggest guy out there when they announce something. But they said today that uh, they're expecting the Canadian economy to hit a mild recession in Q2 and Q3 of next year. So it, it's, it's pretty significant because you know that the banks have, now they're starting to transition away from stable growth. They've gone from accelerating growth to stable now. Yeah, we think things might get soft a year from now. And what I'm pretty sure of is that you're going to see this number get adjusted down and pulled forward. So right forward, now they're right. yes, yeah, so right now they're expecting a half a percent decline in economic activity during Q2 and Q3 of next year. And what I suggest is you know, come September, that number is going to be pulled into Q1 of next year. And they'll all of a sudden it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be one and a half or, or two. Because remember, nothing ever goes from, you know, B 
bang the bang right away. It, it's these gradual movements. And, and that's what everyone has to be uh, wary about right now. So you can, so all of a sudden, if, hey, yeah, we are heading to recession, everyone's talking about it. Uh, it's going to create the opportunity. Then everyone's saying, hey, when will central banks stop hiking rates? And the, the one story and narrative that I'm hearing out of the U.S., out of the Fed, as well as the Treasury, is that uh, they're not going to stop. They, they want to crush the economies and currencies of some specific players out there around the world. Um, so maybe we, we may not get that central bank reaction to it. But again, there's, there's a lot of things happening right now. And uh, so hold on to your, your hats. Oh, I forgot my hat. We'll put the hat on for the next the next. I got a, I got a question, for you, actually. So if you're RBC and you're making that public prediction, right? You know, I'm reading it here on Bloomberg right now. RBC is first bank to predict Canada headed for recession in 2023. Is that something where they, they then like automatically when you make that call that they have to then start like slowly adjusting for like loan loss provisions and stuff? Yeah, absolutely, Steve. Oh, really? You think so? I thought they had like a Chinese wall between the two, like the research strategy outfit and then the bank lending outfit. Am I? I am very naive, aren't I? <laughs> no, I mean, so it's a research department. It's a, a Chinese wall. I mean, that, that's the term they use in the investment banking world. So uh, like if, if, we're, if we're one of the big banks and I'm investment banking and, you know, company, I'm going to bring XYZ to market to do something really cool. I cannot communicate that to the, to the both of you, right? However, it happens anyway, right? That's just the way the world works. This is simply the, the research side of RBC. So they're not doing any kind of investment banking. They're just saying, this is what we expect the economy is going to do. And as again, like the, the all the Canadian banks, they're just stuffed, you know, to the gills. Um, for everyone in the prairies in Alberta, gills is a is the fish, right? That's where they get their uh, their oxygen coming through. Um, anyway, um, yeah, Steve, that because remember we said last quarter RBC had a negative charge for loan provisions, and we said last week on the podcast, hey, you're going to have to start watching what the what the commercial banks are going to do with that. So you're going to, I suspect you'll start to see RBC, especially start ramping up their uh, provisions again. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I'm actually sitting here on the, on the, on the bloom tubes. And uh, one of the ones that's flashing across my screen, it says uh, on their homepage, U.S. mortgage rates plunge to 5.3% in biggest drop since 2008. Uh, so yeah, you're seeing again, some of the, some of the rates adjusting after a huge move up. Uh, in mortgage rates in both Canada and the U.S. now seeing a bit of a bit of can a I can I just a... can I just interject there for a sec? So I think it's a, that's a you you obviously you're just shout you're sharing the fact. I think it's important, but it's also important to just give you sort of an insight a little bit into like why someone like me might f- make it more of an emphasis on like a moving average in a time like this when you have a significant amount of volatility. Some of these data points individually, I think, might. Um, they might overstate, let's say, the bearishness or positiveness or whatever. So because just a couple of weeks ago, we were at 5.98 on that US 30 year mortgage rate. And now we're at 5.3, you know, and so and that's just one month, you know, and so sometimes it's good to sort of step back, contextualize it, throw on a six, you know, three month moving average or whatever and say, okay, what's the central tendency? And is that central tendency going up or down? Um, and so, sorry, I just thought that I could share yeah. a little bit. I mean, I think the main takeaway here, guys, is basically that the rates, the rates markets are basically yo-yoing between inflation and recession and yeah. everybody's trying to figure out exactly how this is going to play out. So anyone that has, you know, a hundred percent conviction on, you know, where rates are going or where the stock market's going to be or where house prices are going to be in six or 12 months. I think you should run in the other direction because everybody's trying to figure this out, but you know, we're, everyone's making their bets and trying to use a probability adjusted, uh, you know, view of, of where they think things are going and, and sort of trying to hedge accordingly. But um, you know, I think that's the, the one thing is I noticed like on Twitter is like, everyone is always like planning for like doomsday and, and the world to burn. And like, I think that's just like the natural pessimism or cynicism uh, that people have. Right. Um, but it so catches eyeballs. Yeah. yeah. But one more I thing mean, though, guys, yeah, Oh yeah, Rich. So uh, no, no, go for it. Go for it. Yeah. Um, but what people should appreciate right now at, at all, 
the banks and lending institutions around the world, they're really concerned right now. They, they've, they're doing a, a pretty quick pivot. And uh, it's, it's always the company that's able to pivot quickly and immediately get ahead of everyone else who can either have make more money elsewhere or have less losses. And then they can use that to get market share elsewhere. So for example, like, uh, you know, Brookfield Asset Management, like they're the, one of the most famous companies around the world that can pivot on a dime. Like these things are like the Borg initiative. They, when something changes, they will, you know, do that. Uh, the big banks can't, it, take, it, it will take them a while. So I can assure you, Every day, you know, these guys on the treasury departments and in the risk departments at the banks, they're sitting down and saying, oh, wow, you know, the, the Looney Hour guys, they introduced this idea a month ago. And now here we are is seeing it happen in, in real time. Um, but, you know, you could, even though rates could come down, it doesn't mean credit spreads will come down. Right. And yeah. That's something I missed on my bit. I, I missed I missed that when we were talking about the bonds. The credit spreads have not have not come down. Yeah. And that's that's a sign Which of a, a dangerous, recession coming exactly. along. Yeah. But anyway, that's where we are. Uh, what's happening with, with the whole food industry these days, guys? Well, no, I want to chat quickly before we pivot there, because I think we're that's that's kind of the next segment of the pod here. But Keith, I just want to get your updated view because I mean this is going to tie into the to the food. Uh, issues and, and whatnot and, and, and food and energy and inflation. This is all going to come together. We're going to put all the pieces together for you guys, but I kind of want to get your updated views, uh, Keith, before we jump into that on the, the U S dollar. Uh, I know you're long, I know you've been bullish and uh, we've seen obviously a big move and that, that, that really ties into everything. So can you kind of update the listeners on what's happening uh, with the U S dollar and kind of the outlook there? And then we'll, we'll, we'll transition accordingly. Yeah, you're right, Steve. Um, I mean, the dollar is, is it is it's either the cause of everything moving in one direction or it it's the result of everything moving in one direction. It is a little bit of both. Um, you know, we we've been we've been on the right side of, of the US dollar side for, for a while now. Um, and the dollar is strong because everything else looks so weak. So then you want to look at, okay, everything that's so weak, is there an opportunity for it to look less weak? You know, again, can it do a pivot or just simply slow down? And then that will cause a lot of money to flow out of the dollar. And what we're seeing right now, like Europe is, is it's on the ropes. Like I suspect right now, as we're doing this on Thursday afternoon, Euro's at 102. I think by Tuesday, we could be breaking the buck on euro like it it could even happen by tomorrow afternoon it's incredibly weak and if 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 that happens uh it'll drive more money into the dollar it'll affect equity markets and commodity markets and and so forth but for everyone investing around the world today you need to start and end with your view on what's going to happen with the dollar and if you get that right you know it's going to help you either make money or you know save money so just to clarify, you're calling for parity between the euro and the U.S. dollar. Uh, yeah, our long-term view for euro is zero. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wah, wah, wah. <laughs> wah, wah, wah. So, so we basically have this situation, guys, just to kind of frame things up here. Uh, and as we've been talking about on the podcast for many, many months is all these things are colliding. Um, and the pandemic was kind of like that, that, that trigger, right. There was that, that crisis that, that triggered things. And, you know, we, we always knew there was these, these, these fundamental issues. So you have a situation where you've got inflation ripping, um, you know, central banks trying to fight inflation. Um, and so things are starting to break by raising interest rates, but, you know, uh, capital is flowing into the, into the U.S. dollar as that sort of safe haven. Um, we've got horrible energy policy around the world. And again, keep in mind that as the U.S. dollar rises, you know, this puts a lot of strain on these emerging markets who are already dealing with um, issues from, again, inflation, food shortages. And so while we have it pretty good here in Canada, um, there is a, a mess happening across many of these markets. And, and one of those ones, uh, Rich, I don't know if you want to sort of take the wheel here, is, is the Dutch. And 
do you want to just kind of update the listeners maybe that aren't following along with, with sure, what's sure. going on there? And this so, is I mean, all correlated, guys. This is all the same. A lot of this is sort of woke politics at, at, the, at the wrong time. I mean, so it's, I think, um, I think like woke gets a bad name. So I think that's, and I think, think people sort of get riled by that. So maybe I'll just refine it by saying climate change is becoming macroeconomic policy. And in a way that I don't think people have been properly informed about those decisions. Um, I think that those decisions have been made in haste um, and they've become as a result of those decisions being made at a very high level and being pushed down. You can see whether it's Christina Freeland this, a couple of days ago talking about how we need even more renewables to deal with high prices in oil. Um, it, there's a lot of political capital that has been invested um, in this narrow focus. Remember, no one wants nuclear hydro. So it's, it's not that we're against climate change policy and reducing emissions. It's just the narrow focus. Let's be very clear about that. Um, and it's the narrow way in which the, these uh, goals are going to be met. And so there's a lot of capital. And so again, why do I set this up this way? Because one of the most important data points, before we get to Dutch, one of the most important data points that came out last week was the German trade deficit hit its lowest level to be clear about this, it's in non-annualized um, terms um, in, you know, and that's important because it's a 12-month, uh, you know, uh, it's a 12-month series. But anyways, um, since 1991. So that's, I mean, that's incredible. So Germany, which should be, uh, which is normally a, a global exporting powerhouse, had its visible trade balance. So goods, not including services, but goods, um, hit basically a 30-year low. And why did it hit a 30-year low? It's because it's importing an incredible amount of natural gas. Natural gas prices have also gone high through the roof. They've gone up six or seven times. So anyway, so that's all related to the next story. And what's going on? I don't know. People are not talking about it in mainstream media. I don't want to be one of those guys, but it's this one is definitely true. Um, there's just no talk of, um, you know, of what's going on in the Netherlands. And What's been going on is that there's a massive, massive farmers protest that makes the Freedom Convoy look like, uh, you know, summer camp and Laurentians um, to give you some. And so what they're doing is they the, the farmers in Netherlands um, have basically been told to cut emissions, very specifically pneumonium oxide and and sorry, nitrous oxide and ammonia by 50 percent by 2030. So basically seven years from now. Um, effectively, what that will do is, in some cases, completely destroy farming businesses, especially in the cattle um, livestock business. And the farmers in the Netherlands are not happy about this. Uh, they're blocking highways, airports. They, in one video, I saw them basically dump like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kilos of manure in front of a civil a city hall building, which is kind of bad because you know those people are just trying to do their job but also really funny um also it's it's spread to fishermen so fishermen are blocking major marinas and ports in the netherlands um the there's been in, and by the way it's been almost totally 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 peaceful let's be very clear about this this is civil disobedience this is not violent you know uh, these are not violent protests um I'm sure, I'm sure if they were, we would have been, uh, they would have been splattered all over the internet by now. But anyways, and so the reason is, is um, and I think with another thing that's really important to know about these Dutch farmers is, you know, these aren't, uh, you know, these aren't people who are taking kind of unsubstantiated kind of, these are not knuckle draggers. These people care about climate change. And you say, hey, Rich, how can you be so sure about it? Netherlands has one of the most sophisticated farming apparatuses in the world. It is it punches way, way, way above its 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 weight in terms of food export efficiency, output quality. Um, it spends an incredible amount of money on research and, and, and development. Um, it has an incredible amount of greenhouse gas. They reduce they reuse their fertilizers. It's extremely efficient. And then there's loads and loads of articles by places like National Geographic or the WEF from a couple of years ago that that's talk about how Netherlands is a model for sustainable farming in the world. Okay, so these guys are not knuckle draggers who don't give a shit about climate change. These are people who are, have committed to being an extremely efficient producer of goods and have basically been told they're not allowed to have cows anymore. 
and they're not having it. And this is why we talk about this is because it relates to obviously the German trade balance going almost negative for the first time in 30 years, right? Again, no nuclear, only wind. And it also relates to a really, really sad story, which is the collapse of the Sri Lankan economy. You say, Rich, how can those two be related? Well, two years ago, in their infinite wisdom, the Sri Lankan government said they don't want to use any artificial fertilizers. Again, this, this is see how it's all sort of connected. And again, it's the same sort of artificial fertilizers that the Dutch are using, which cause, yes, are emission heavy, but are very, very good at growing food. Sri Lankan economy is, and I quote, the prime minister has collapsed because they, they went organic and their crop yields basically are a fraction of what they should be. So anyways, I just like, so this is sort of what, this is the backdrop um, of Sri Lanka, which is a very poor country, really, really needs food and another, and a rich country that's an extremely efficient producer and very cognizant and conscientious producer of food. And so you have two different stories, two different narratives that are basically really the result of, in my view, very narrow climate change policy. And I think it's, um, it's reverberating. I think this will reverberate around the world. And it's something I would, I would encourage everybody to not take my word for it. Go and look up sustainable farming Netherlands and try to read as many articles about that. Because you'll see that these guys, again, I submit to you, they're not anti-climate change knuckle draggers. These people care about being efficient and, 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 and producing high quality goods and they pay a living wage on and on and on. You guys have heard it. But anyway, that's, that's what's going on in the Netherlands. I don't know if you guys have different questions or. No, I mean, I think like, again, guys, like, I think we just have to understand, like, I think it's just putting like your politics aside. It doesn't matter what you think. Like if you are pro climate change or against it, or if you believe in it or don't believe in it, it's not really the point. The point is really just like, okay, let's understand you know, the economics behind it. And what does this mean for us living day to day? What, you know, what does this mean for our, our, our wealth, our portfolios? I think that's really the, the, the biggest takeaway and just understanding that like these policies, again, like it's, I don't think it's a surprise. I mean, like, for example, like these, you know, the Dutch not being able to basically have like cattle. I mean, I think there's a, if you, if you kind of like follow some of that side of politics, like there's a huge cohort of society that doesn't want you to eat steak anymore like how does that impact like your life and and then and you know people starving and, and all this sort of stuff so there's actually an update from uh we you know in for in canada here uh on on canada the canadian government website says reducing reducing emissions arising from the application of fertilizer in canada's agricultural sector uh the government of canada announced its strengthened climate plan and uh one of those ones is to uh, reduce GHG emissions arising from fertilizer application by 30% below 2020 levels by 2030. So the same, same sort of thing here is kind of ongoing behind the scenes. That's going to impact, uh, you know, the farmers here and our food output. And um, there was actually an article that we shared. We've got a, a Looney Hour group chat um, funny enough, it was actually removed from, we knew it was going to get removed, but there was, uh, on the, the UN United Nations website, uh, talking about, uh, food, food shortages and, and did it get removed? It got, yeah. I'm looking at it right now. Amazing. Amazing. Not removed, but there's, there's, there's it's not amazing. It's, you know, it's, it's amazing. It got posted in the first place. It's well, amazing. Yeah, Steve, why don't, okay, sorry, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Steve, why don't you explain what the article is in case some sorry, people haven't? It, it literally said it literally said that um food shortages were a good thing. Um that, that was like literally, I think like the not maybe not verbatim, but that was like the, the article headline. Um and so every, like it got circulated around on Twitter. Like I actually clicked on it, it literally it went to the UN Nations website. It was it was like legit, it was on their website. And there's a bunch of screen grabs. So uh, I did ultimately looks like it got taken down. Uh, but I'll just read you an excerpt from uh, that article. It says, quote, for those of us at the high end of the social ladder, ending hunger globally would be a disaster. If there were no hunger in the world, who would plow the fields? Who would harvest our vegetables? Who would work in the rendering plant? Who would clean our toilets? We would have to produce our own food and clean our own toilets. No wonder people at the high end are not rushing to solve the hunger problem. For many of us, hunger is not a problem, but an asset. 
So um, that's just a lack of understanding about productivity growth. And I think it's not at all surprised that it comes from the UN. I mean, you know, you, anyways, we, we, that's maybe the dig- digression for a different day, but I, I think that that's an outrageous thing to say. And also a fundamental dislocation from reality. It is because people are well-fed that we have Shakespeare. You say, Rich, how can you say that? It's because that there's an excess, a surplus of goods, a surplus of food, a surplus of all of these products. It allows um, societies to spend more time doing things that are not just trying to survive. And so not only is that an absolutely abhorrent statement, and that person should be summarily panned or put in the stocks or something and had vegetables thrown at them. Um, it's just wrong. It's just not anybody who's spent any time understanding anthropology, even on a, a superficial level, understand that that's not true at all. So it just, it just kind of like, I kind of like poo poo it. Cause like, I hate like the, like the, the doomsdayers, but it kind of like, it kind of makes you think like the whole like Klaus Schwab, like 2030 great reset like stuff sound like less and less of like a conspiracy like you'll own nothing and you'll eat bugs like yeah it's kind of like yeah yeah like when you start like seeing like all these policies that are being enacted like oh god like maybe like maybe these people that are talking about that like aren't that crazy after all like is that the path that we're going down because you know um i'm just seeing it here in 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 the political space more and more talk about you know, energy policy, the energy policy that we're continuing to take. Like, I think we just have to understand, like, if, if these guys are serious about like, okay, this is the climate change path that we're going to go down and, and we aren't going to deviate from it, that like the transition away from fossil fuels to renewables, like it's going to take a lot of time and it's going to be very painful. It's going to be very inflationary. Uh, as we People are going to die, Steve. People are going to yeah. die. People are going to, that's what it means. A lot of people are going to die, but I, I know but some people, some to... people, hold on. Some people will say, well, that's so, cause Rich, I've actually chatted with the other side of this and just, just agnostically. I'm just curious to hear like what their thought process is. I've chatted with the other side of this and they believe right or wrong. They believe that people that basically if we don't go through this painful process, they actually, they believe basically people need to die and we need to depopulate in order to save the climate. It's that already the, happening though. <laughs> I've heard uh, that before. Yeah, I mean, they, they believe that it needs to depopulate rather significantly and like people need to die in order to save like the world from basically going up in flames. So again, I don't know, right or wrong, that's, that's what they believed. And so I think obviously we're saying, you know, kind of the other side is okay, well, listen, if you want to go there, that, yeah, people, people will starve and die and, uh, you know, we'll have a lower standard of living because, you know, you'll, you'll have inflationary pressures, um, you know, the cost of energy. So, I mean, you can go back to Germany, right? Like they're basically having to sort of start to make decisions potentially here in the very near future of like shutting down plants and, and conserving energy. Uh, and that's going to sort of decimate their manufacturing sector, if that's the case. There's one really important thing that I left out as far as the EU policy over the week, and then I'll kind of write back to Keith, which is the EU had a vote on whether or not gas, natural gas and nuclear power could be um, labeled or there's a, the word is taxonomy. I don't know why they use that word, but um, as green energy and it won. Uh, Greta was not happy. Uh, but yeah, so that's really, really important going forward because you can now, they can now shift investment back into natural gas and nuclear. And just so everybody knows, natural gas is 60% less carbon emissions than coal, for example. Anyway, sorry, Keith, I know you want to say something. Uh, yeah, so from uh, our perspective, so, so this whole, just to bring it back to this narrative, we started talking about the Dutch and then the farmers, and then it moved over to the whole fertilizer space, stuff like that. Uh, just from a pure investment perspective, uh, you know, it, it is what it is for us. We, we just see this as opportunity. So uh, we want to be long agricultural commodities. And the reason for that, it, it's very... Um, likely or the probability continues to increase that the supply or the ability to produce increasingly more, you know, buckets of food, it, it, it's, it, it's not good. Okay. So it's going to decline, which means that there's an opportunity to make money in that space. So we, we want to be long in that space. And then on top of it, you know, this whole, again, I keep going back to Euro and, you know, I, as you, as everyone knows by now, like I, I don't have a very optimistic outlook 
for Europe. But with the protest that started in uh, in Holland this week, it's now spread to Italy this morning. That's right. It's also spreading to Poland. And I imagine by the weekend, the French will be protest will be joining it as well because the French farmers are already up in arms anyway. Like they're, they're already upset with, with government as well. Uh, so this has the, this has the opportunity to really uh, escalate over the next few days. And remember, escalation means it's, it's, a, it's an exponential increase. It's not a linear, gradual, every day it's a little bit better or worse. Uh, so again, you go back to, okay, how does that affect global markets? It is going to affect the euro. At the same time, this morning, um, minutes came out from the last ECB meeting to suggest you know, they're not quite as hawkish as what they were trying to communicate. And again, all, all these, everything is connected here. You, you know, you, you're drawing one dot to the other, to the next, and you can clearly see where, where this stuff is going. So uh, with, with Steve planning, uh, you know, a nice little romantic trip to Europe, maybe at, at some point soon, uh, from a Canadian dollar perspective, it, it could be a lot cheaper coming up. But again, it, it, the, the cards are stacked against Europe right now as well as uh, you have to understand the impact it will have on the, on the, on the food and, and fertilizing industry. And these are all very powerful investment perspectives. So as Rich said, don't get caught up in the emotions of it. You know, don't, from your investment side, like don't try to believe what is right and what is wrong. Because there's no right or wrong in the investment world. It simply, it is what it is. And you know, we, we just deal with it and, and move on. But again, like this, this is a pretty big few days coming up over in, uh, in Europe. Yeah, which leads us to uh, the the oh, Brits. What's happening? I'm just going to summarize um, the just to be, again to bring it back to Canada here. I'm looking at a report on the on the on the food side. So again, keeping in mind all our all our farmers and 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 whatnot. Um, so it says here just to quickly, I'll give you guys a quick summary. British Columbians paid 16% more for bacon um, in May compared to the same time last year. Other price grains included a 20, 21% for more for cabbage and 28% more for chicken breasts. Albertans paid 14% more for chicken thighs, 18% more for stewing beef, 20% more for celery, 22% more for spaghetti. Uh, shoppers in Saskatchewan paid 13% more for baked beans. Manitobans paid 18% more for apple juice, 23% more for iceberg lettuce, 34% more for mayonnaise. Uh, Ontarians paid 14% more for cabbage, 16% more for butter, 25% more for pork ribs. Quebec paid 16% more for white bread, 65% uh, more for pork shoulder cuts. In New Brunswick, people paid 20% more for wheat flour. Nova Scotians paid 16% more for peppers, 17% more for baby food, 21% uh, <laughs> 21 more for spaghetti, um, and, and I'll kind of just leave it there. I can kind of keep going on, but it was a nice report from, uh, from black locks. there, just kind of highlighting a bunch of the, the, the food, food inflation. I think like, I mean, we've talked about in the show ultimately again, just to, we'll switch gears here, but I think food inflation, I feel like food, food inflation in particular is the one where that's where you start to get the social unrest. That's where the pitchforks come out. So speaking of which, actually, so I, there's something, so it's something else I forgot. Sorry, I'm off today, I guess. But the one thing that's really important to note, actually, is so I track something called the um, Goldman Sachs S&P Commodity Index, and they provide uh, commodity index, price indexes, spot, so today, basically, and total return indexes for virtually every single commodity that you could possibly think of, like, like literally every single... Um, and the one that I, you know, obviously the ones that I keep track of the most are oil, for obvious reasons, industrial metals, um, and agricultural goods. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago, people were worried about the grain index, you know, hitting all time highs and continuing to rise. Well, actually, funnily enough, um, it turns it turns out that, you know, tanking your economy can impact the price of agricultural goods. And actually, ag oil's down 20% from the peak agricultural indexes. Or, uh, the agricultural index, which includes grain and livestock, et cetera, is down about almost 30, 27% from the peak. And metals, which is extremely sensitive to growth, um, especially in China, et cetera, is down 35% from the peak. So there has been some respite 
from from the um, from the food inflation worries that we were talking about and thinking about several months ago. But I think the point remains. I mean, you need cheap energy um, in order to live the life that we all take sort of for granted. Um, and I think we're being reminded of how important um, a lot of these decisions can be and how often the people making these decisions, they don't have any skin in the game. They're not affected by it, you know? And I think that that's, that's I don't know, for me, that's really important, especially from an economic standpoint. I mean, you, I don't know. I mean, I was going to ask, uh, I mean, actually, that would, you kind of led me right into my next point, which was basically, how, how are you looking at this? Keith, you've talked about oil quite a bit. I know Rich has been super bullish. I mean, I think we've all been fairly bullish, but I know, Keith, you were kind of warning, uh, you know, a little bit that the trade might be overdone. What, what is, is this just basically, I mean, I'm curious your interpretation. I have my own interpretation, but basically markets appear to be sniffing out, um, you know, the, the recent decline, for example, in energy prices. Everybody knows, like, structurally, I think, like, energy prices structurally should remain relatively elevated. And we do have an energy crisis, I think, that will probably be with us for at least a few years. But uh, energy, you know, despite that, markets, uh, you know, oil's been selling off. And is that just recession fears, Keith? Yeah, that's what we suspect. So, um, you know, anyone who's looking to, as an opportunity to buy oil or energy, you might have that opportunity over the next few weeks, say three to eight weeks, something like that. And then it could go higher again. So uh, remember, nothing ever goes in a straight line. So longer term, I, I think the opportunity is, is pretty positive for that market. Uh, however, again, we keep going back. If the recession drums start to beat louder and louder, and it is confirmed by data, that will you know overwhelm all these other stories we're talking about, and uh, you know that that should create a correction, you know, in some of the commodity spaces. So uh, that's what we that's what we see as. It's probably happening. And then, you know, we would act on that. So that's the path that we're looking at. So something on the oil thing, just really important, again, just to provide some context and some insight into sort of what sort of institutional investors might be looking at is, again, oil prices that you see on CBC or at the pump. That's something called a spot price. Uh, most commodities, I don't, I can't really think of a commodity that's not traded this way, is traded on a curve. So what that, what does that mean? It means you are purchasing barrels or bushels or tons of whatever commodity out into the future. And so what I, what I looked like, not just me, obviously other more sophisticated investors will look at is oil prices and the curve. So you've got a futures curve. So what you're buying, how much the barrel of oil costs to deliver today in six months, in 12 months, and in three years or in five years. I don't think it goes out much further than that. Although in theory, I guess you could buy oil. And those commodities uh, contracts are, op um, are basically, yeah, um, they're, they go out. And what's interesting for me is, you know, 35 months out, I can't divide 35 by 12, but 35 months out, um, you know, the, the, the three, um, the decline um, has only been about, you know, 6% or whatever, all right? And whereas the front end of the curve, which is much more sensitive to obviously, um, I mean, different parts of, you know, recession fears or whatever is um, it has, has moved much, much more. Right. So it's moved 20 percent, whereas far out the curve, it's moved maybe 5 percent. So it tells you the difference between sort of recession fears and then structural um, supply issues that might take longer to deal with. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. sorry. Like I, said, I mean, a little lesson there. I guess we'll 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 see how this uh, shapes up. I mean, I always find it interesting just to to kind of summarize is the you know the, the goal of central bankers basically is to kill the man, aka induce a recession. Um, but you know, I don't think our sovereigns are set up for uh, to handle recessions when you know global debt to GDP is at three hundred and sixty five percent. So. Um, either way, I, again, guys, I think this is just, you know, turbulent times is just kind of look out for yourself, you know, acknowledge the information that is, that is coming in, that is hitting us here. And, and, you know, you try to keep your, your emotions out of it and it just, you know, accept that, you know, it is, it is what it is. Governments and policymakers are going to make the decisions that they, that they are going to make. And you just kind of have to trade around that and, and, and position accordingly. Uh, speaking of, uh, I don't know, whatever word you just said reminded me of this, but, but guys, like today, the entire British conservative cabinet resigned. I know. <laughs> it, it's outstanding.
understanding. I mean, like every, you know, in general, every politician, the career ends in flames. That's just what happens usually, right? You just go out. Uh, but today's story on that. Uh, maybe I, I don't know much about it, but, but I think though, like from a higher level perspective, again, it's what we look at here is that, um, you know, the, the Brits, they are America's closest European ally. And uh, when all of a sudden now you get complete confusion and chaos and all the stuff that Thomas the Tank Engine talks about, uh, there's that, that creates this momentary pause in the geopolitical world. And uh, it has huge implications with, with what the Russians are doing. They now have an open window to do, to, to do a few things. Um, and again, because everything moves in, in, in big waves all the time. Um, any government that's been in power for a while, so here in Canada, you know, the, the red shirt guys have been in for a while now. Um, it, it's inevitable that you're going to see that wave or that pendulum you know, swing the opposite direction as well. So people just need to get ready for that. But again, basically every conservative member in the British Parliament resigned today, including the Prime Minister. And a lot of reasons for it, but it's extremely dramatic. Rich, what's your uh, your your favorite British show that you watch all the time? Oh yeah, yes, Prime Minister. Cover this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, there's just a bit of just maybe just a little bit of context. I know we're running out of time, but just a little bit of context with the British. So Boris Johnson is the Prime Minister, or was, or actually, I still still think he technically still is the Prime Minister until they find a new one. Um, but he's been scandal-ridden for his entire tenure. Um, he was scandal-ridden before he even got elected. So um, there's some corollaries there with somebody I can think of. But anyways, um, what, what I think is um, important to note is, I mean, I'm not even going to talk about his politics, just specifically about his tenure there, is that he's been caught in a couple of dumb lies. But for Canadians, I think what's really fascinating um, is the difference in power, relative power, that MPs have in the House of Commons versus the Prime Minister. And so this would be the second time in about seven or eight years where you would have had MPs basically circle the wagon, all, all staunch like of a specific party. So MPs circle the wagon and boot the prime minister out of their position, but maintain the majority in the parliament. So they so and it's just sort of it's to me as a Canadian, it's a stark contrast with in Canada, where our prime minister sort of has much, for some reason, I think it's maybe it's a cultural thing or I don't know, maybe a lack of intestinal fortitude, but, um, you know, they money maybe, but they, you know, they just, they, they treat, you know, whatever the, the PM in Canada, the prime minister says in Canada goes. And in, in, in the UK, it has a much, much more robust house of commons where you constantly see the prime minister held to account by his own peers, peers who would abhor the Labour Party politics, which is the opposition party. And so they, they booted out Theresa May when she didn't deliver on Brexit and yet maintained the, the majority in, 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 in the House of Commons. And again, although it took a little while, they booted out their, their next leader, Boris Johnson. And, 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 and so I just think it's as Canadians, it's, it's fascinating to contrast that where leader of the party gets caught in a lie, repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly lacks the confidence of the constituents. And in the UK, they're just like, oh, next one. And so about now they'll have a, a, they'll have a leadership race within the Conservative Party caucus in the UK. And hopefully somebody will rise to the occasion. Canadians uh, are too polite. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. All hey, right, Steve, well, we'll see. Right, there's... Um... You've, there's, you should be watching a movie this week. Be prepared for a movie this week, the one with uh, Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson. Do you remember that one? Pink Crashers. Yeah. Rich and I are coming, man. We're coming. Yeah. <laughs> Come on down. Is there a direct flight from Halifax? Oh, goodness. I lost my luggage on the way to Iceland, <laughs> and it showed up the day before we left. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. Oh, well, it's a good place to wrap it up. As always, we uh, appreciate the support. All we ask is that you share this episode with at least uh, one friend or family member uh, as we continue to build the Looney Hour community one by one by one. Um, 
as always, uh, have a great week and we'll see you next week.